Hey everyone, welcome to part two of the Dan and Joe Sports Show as we discuss The Last Dance. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. Um, Joe, we left off, we were talking about how through watching The Last Dance, it seemed like there were so much more larger-than-life stars back in the 90s when Jordan and the Bulls were dominating than what you had right now. And Joe, one thing too that made it so much more impressive are those players that he beat. I mean, he gets to the NBA Finals, he beats Barkley and the Suns, he beats Clyde the Glide Drexler in the in the Trailblazers, Gary Payton and Sean Kemp with uh, with with the Supersonics, and then of course beating Carl Malone in the Jazz twice, and then not to mention his first one beating Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. I mean, he took down them all. No, that, that's very true. Um, a very impressive run, you know, for the six championships. And I think that when I look at the two championships of the Sedex that stand out the most to me were the two that they probably should not have won. Mm-hmm. Um, four of the years, they had the better record. They had home court advantage in the finals. That was against the Lakers in 91, the Trailblazers in 92, the Sonics in 96, and the Jazz in 97. But you look at the 1993 season and the 1998 season, the Bulls were really not the better team in those matchups. In 93, the Suns had home court advantage. Barkley was the MVP. In 98, the Jazz had home court advantage. They won game one of that series. They had defeated the Bulls in both of their regular season matchups. Stockton and Malone, it, it, you know, it just does not get stated enough how good they were historically in what they did. John Stockton, the all-time assists and steals leader in NBA history. Carl Malone, I think the second all-time leading scorer behind Kareem. And just the longevity and durability of what they accomplished for 17 or 18 consecutive seasons going to the playoffs. For Michael Jordan to defeat teams like that, I mean, and basically single-handedly in 1998, where he just was running on fumes. Scottie Pippen was injured. I mean, that is the stuff of greatness, and that's what I think immortalizes that 1998 season. Well, yeah, and, I mean, you look at all the great stories you have from that 1998 season. Uh, the best one, though, is uh, I thought it was Steve Kerr and the amazing shots that he made, A, to beat the – to beat the Pacers in that game seven where it looked like Reggie Miller and company was about to take them out. And it seemed like they had given them their absolute best shot. And then there goes Steve Kerr making his clutch shot. And then of course, yet again, in the finals against the, against the jazz, you see that clutch gene with Steve Kerr making another game winning shot. And I kind of got the feeling from watching that. I was like, I get how this guy's become such a great NBA coach because I mean, he had to go through uh go through the ringers with Jordan. I mean, he, he talked about that story about how Michael Jordan didn't respect him at first, and he basically had to get into a fight with him in practice in order for Jordan to start feeling okay to give him the ball and make him feel like he was a man. And you could see that, that Kerr went through it all and just, you know, he didn't let anything get to him. And when his opportunity was there, he always took it and made it. He absolutely did, and I find his career fascinating. You know, the parallel between you know the tragedy of his father and Jordan's mm-hmm. father. You know, that brought them closer together. I think, and also 
Steve Kerr individually throughout his career, you know, not, not only as a coach, but as a player, he's been a part of so many dynasties. You know, he was on three of the Bulls championship teams in the late 90s. He was, in 1999, a member of the Spurs championship team. So he actually won four consecutive rings. I think he's the only player that wasn't on uh, one of the Celtics teams with Bill Russell, who actually won four consecutive championships. And then in 2003, he won another ring with the Spurs. And now as a head coach, he has three championships with the Warriors. And so, you know, there's something about him. You know, he, he seems to be a guy that you can't give him the most credit because he's been surrounded by just historically great players. But you definitely know that he um, mentally and just the fact that he's such a professional, he definitely has brought something as a common denominator to all of these great teams. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely some role that he has played in all those championships, from making those clutch shots to the Bulls to being a more prolific three point shooter with Spurs later in his career. I mean, and then to what he's brought as a coach, just managing great talent. He's got he's got a little bit of an it factor. You know, he kind of makes me think of. And I was watching this. I was thinking about this when I was watching that show. It's a lot like Robert Ori. Robert Ori always seemed like he was on championship teams, and that. He'd go away, but in the last five minutes of a game, there he was making a big defensive stop, making a shot, and he was, he was just a winner. That's a good comparison. I think Ori won, let's see, he won two titles with the Rockets, three with the Lakers, two with the Spurs, seven championships. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I thought was so fascinating, too, is, I mean, it always seemed to me that the Bulls were always the top dog and always winning. And I had no idea how long it was for them to get over the Dirty Pistons. I mean, that was that was such a great rivalry that they were showing in the beginning, and how the Pistons had the Jordan rules where they were basically always attacking him on the ground so that he couldn't get in the air. And it was just so fascinating to to see uh, Isaiah Thomas and just how much people hated him. And you know, just that that great rivalry right there. And I love the interactions that they had with Jordan watching what other people said in interviews. And the best one that he had was when they showed Isaiah Thomas talking about the no handshake after the Bulls swept them in 1991. Yeah, that, that was a good one. I mean, that, that rivalry between the Bulls and the Pistons, I mean, that is definitely compelling for so many reasons. Uh, the Pistons won back-to-back championships under Chuck Daly as the head coach, Joe Dumars, and um, – Isaiah Thomas is the catalyst um, for the team on the floor, and they kind of ended the uh, Lakers dynasty Mm -hmm. in the finals, knocked them off in the 1989 finals, and then won again in 1990. And then the Bulls um, finally got the best of the Pistons in 1991. And prior to that, you know, right now in contemporary times, we look at Michael Jordan and only know him as a winner. But during the documentary, they talked about how he was often criticized as not really being a guy that could win playoff games early in his career. He was perceived more as a performer, as someone who's just entertaining to watch as a basketball player and scored a lot of points, but he wasn't able to do enough for his team, you know, to win games when it counted. Mm-hmm. And so by knocking off the Pistons and their defensive-minded mindset, he really uh, changed the narrative on his career. 
Yeah, Joe, I mean, that was interesting. People looked at him as a prolific scorer, but not a very good team player. He was almost looked at at the beginning of his career, kind of like Carmelo Anthony was, which that was totally true. But that was the way people looked at Carmelo Anthony. Um, I thought it was interesting, too, that he had such a heavy distaste for the Pistons that winning that third championship in a row was the most important thing to him. It was way more important than one or two because if he could get that third one, then his team was better historically than what the Pistons were winning two in a row or what the Lakers did with winning two in a row with Magic. So you can really see in that documentary that that 1993 season may have been the most important one to Jordan. Yeah, I mean, by that point, like I said earlier, he was, um, you know, mentally exhausted because the Suns had a better record, home court advantage in that series, looked like they were going to knock off the Bulls. But he just played out of his mind in that finals. I think he had one game, like game three or game four, in overtime, he scored over 50 points, I believe. I think he averaged close to 40 points a game for the entire series, which I think is an all-time finals record. And so I think that you just look at his performances in so many of those big games, and and you really don't see a letdown performance. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is one thing I think that uh, um, hurts or detracts from LeBron James. Not only does he have so many finals losses, but there have been several key moments where he just had a bad game, like any you know human has. Like he maybe scored eight points or something like that in a finals game. I think he did that back in 2011. You never saw Michael Jordan do anything like that. I mean, in fact, you saw Michael Jordan put up, what, 38 points when he got an intentionally food poisoned. That was the greatest thing to me. Is, is I'd always heard about the flu game, and I thought it was that he, you know, he had a stomach bug or something like that. And I had no idea that there was actual intentional food poisoning that happened. Although I will say that I feel like Jordan is somewhat culpable on this. That if someone shows up to my hotel room with five guys delivering a pizza, I think he should have he should have seen something kind of weird about that. Yeah, I think you know it makes you if you were an opposing player almost nervous. You know when you go on the road um, to eat out, you know at restaurants after seeing something like that, you know you almost want some team cook or someone to prepare the meals for you just to be safe. I mean, I, I had never really like you said, I didn't know that story, and it was it was definitely fascinating. Well, and what I thought was so interesting, too, is I never considered, like, Utah being a, an intimidating place to go. But when they were showing that, I mean, I was blown away by how passionate the Jazz fans were and, and just how into it they were, and especially how it seemed like they were pretty rough on opposing teams. Salt Lake City is not something I would generally think of as being kind of a scary venue for people, but they definitely they proved me wrong on that one. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always perceived that their fan base is – was passionate, but I never perceived them, you know, as a fan base that would, um, you know, play dirty, you know, that would, you know, be yelling vulgarities or would, you know, do something like, you know, potentially uh, use uh, food poisoning. But they did, though. I mean, you could see it. They were vicious towards Jordan. Obviously, they they did some stuff to that pizza and uh, made you think that maybe they were uh, not following the credos and drinking some coffee or something. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, I really thought too that it was so fascinating to see Isaiah Thomas get interviewed and when they talked about the dream team, all of the players on it, and when he talks about his own personal accomplishments versus the people that got on it and the fact that he didn't make it, 
I was like, wow, that was an intentional thing based on the fact that people didn't like you and they didn't like the Pistons. Because, I mean, how could he possibly have not been good enough to make the team when he had, I think, 12 – he was he made 12 All-NBA teams. He had two championships, and he had been the MVP multiple times. So you could definitely see that there was some genuine distaste for him and the Pistons and the way they played basketball. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, he's one of you know, the best point guards of all time. And, you know, he was still um, playing really well even in 92. I think he retired a year or two later. But it really made no sense, you know, otherwise to exclude him from the roster, especially when you let um, Christian Leitner, who had never played an NBA game at the time. He was going to be a rookie and had just finished his uh, senior season of college. You let him on the roster, but you don't let a Hall of Famer like Isaiah Thomas. Well, speaking of Christian Leitner, uh, you know, you've always seen that that image of uh, Leitner throwing the ball, uh, making that great pass, and the shot being made to beat Kentucky in the Final Four. I didn't know that what Stockton did to Malone, that pass that he threw to beat the Bulls, and I think it was, was it game two of the 97 series. I mean, to me, that was actually a greater play than even the, the Leitner pass to, to beat North Carolina. I guess it ultimately didn't have as much meaning because it wasn't to win the overall series. But that, that pass that Stockton made from all the way across the court, I mean, that was absolutely amazing. It was fantastic. I mean, it looked like he could have been a quarterback in football the way he just, you know, threaded the needle and just, you know, hit his receiver in stride for the basket. It was a thing of beauty. One of the best, you know, full-court passes I've ever seen. Um, you know, it makes me think about guys like uh, – I talked about it on the show a few weeks ago. We lost a Hall of Fame basketball player, Wes Unsell. You ever pull up Phil the pin passing the ball in the 1970s? I mean, that's a thing of beauty. Um, in the contemporary game, uh, Kevin Love is one of the best uh, full court passers in basketball. You know, if somebody's on the run, you just throw it deep and they can go for it and, and get to the rim. And that's exactly what Stockton did um, with Malone. Well, Joe, speaking of Stockton Malone, um, where would you put them in the pantheon of great teammates who never won one? Would you put them above uh, a Thurman Thomas, Andre Rosen, and Jim Kelly? Because those are like those are the three that I would like pose against them for guys that were on the same team forever, forever had great levels of success, continued to make it there, but they can never win it. I would put that threesome of Andre Rosen, Jim Kelly, and Thurman Thomas as the only one that can really compete with Stockton Malone for the never won ones? Now, I would say that um, the simple answer is that I think that Stockton and Malone are the best two players probably in sports history that never won a ring. I think the arguments can be made for that. Um, they're right up there. Definitely the best in basketball that never won a ring. And I think that you could make the case that they're one of the, if not the best, duos in basketball history. When you look at the fact that they played together, I think, for 18 consecutive seasons in every year they made it to the playoffs. Not missing games. You have the all-time assist and stills leader at point guard um, who's an efficient scorer at times. And then you have one of the all-time leading scorers in Carl Malone who can also rebound, play defense. I mean, you had everything with these two guys. I mean, you could make a case if Carl Malone had a couple of rings I could make a case that he's a top five player in NBA history. I still feel like I could make a case he's in the top ten, even without a ring. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was that good. And Stockton, you 
only hit, they had knocked off the Bulls a couple of times and Michael Jordan's greatness. I mean, suddenly you're catapulting them to NBA supremacy. Well, I mean, how many guys have a, a patented shot named after them? The finger roll was synonymous with John Stockton. There's no other player you think of when you think of the finger roll. When I was a kid in the backyard, that's what I want to do. That instead of doing a layup, I always like to do the finger roll in honor of John Stockton. I loved it. And we call Malone. I'd forgotten, like as an adult, when I was going back and watching him, how great of a pure shooter he was. I mean, I always thought of him being an inside guy because he was so big. But I mean, he could make a shot from anywhere on the floor. He had an absolute, just great pure shooting stroke. Yeah. No, he definitely did. And the mailman, you know, he always delivered. And uh, I know there was a joke sometimes when they were playing the Bulls that the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays, you know, if he had a bad game. But, you know, goodness. Um, he and Stockton, you know, they, they had the whole package. Um, definitely, you know, I look back at sports, and I think that, you know, it makes me sad at times that they're not as respected because they don't have the hardware to go along with what was just, you know, Tremendous careers. The same can be said for the late Jerry Sloan, their head coach, you know, Hall of Fame coach that deserved more than uh, going ringless. Um, you know, I was talking about earlier, where do they rank as far as the greatest athletes in any sport to not win a ring? I mean, I'm trying to think maybe Dan Marino. I mean, is there anybody else that comes to your mind that does not have a ring that would uh, match up to Stockton Malone? How about two more guys that were on the last dance? I mean, I was watching that thing about the fact that Reggie Miller never won a ring. Reggie Miller never won one. Patrick Ewing never won a ring. We're talking about two more guys that are like, uh, that were both on the dream team. Absolutely incredible players. I mean, uh, Reggie Miller, we're talking about shooting stroke. He maybe had the greatest one of all time. I think in terms of three point shooters, it's him and Ray Allen. And then, you know, from there, there, there's a wide gap, I think, between the two of them and anyone else. And then Patrick Ewing's one of the greatest big men of all time. And because of Jordan, they never won one either. I would say Elgin Baylor is another player. I think of the basketball team was the final so many times. Like the year, I think after he retired, Lakers finally won a championship with Jerry West. Um, I think George Gervin's another guy with the Spurs who never won one. Um, you know, football, it talks about Dan Marino. Um, baseball, you know, you don't really get this conversation because it's not viewed, um, it's viewed more as an individual sport as far as statistics. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like people can remember who has the whole run record better than they can who won the World Series five years ago. Well, I mean, baseball is weird because you're right, you're not really necessarily working in sync that often, especially when it comes to offensive statistics. Because you think about it with the Bulls, I mean, Pippen's able to get the assist to Jordan. Stockton's able to get the assist to Milano. And they both have to have great games to win. And, and baseball just seems like it's a little bit, yeah, a little bit more individualistic and that your numbers don't make as much of a difference. So it's kind of weird when it comes to that. Um, you know, we were talking about earlier in our last show about Cam Newton and the amazing financial deal that the Patriots are getting out of it. Well, one thing I never realized back then when I was a kid was how on the cheap the Bulls were getting Scottie Pippen. I mean, that was just – that was disgusting that they were getting Scottie Pippen as the 110th best play, uh, paid player 
and they locked him into that long-term deal. I mean, he was probably for his entire career in the NBA between a top five to a top ten level player. Yeah, I mean, he was a complete bargain, and that's you know a gross understatement. And I was also um, blown away by how much money they reported that Michael Jordan was making in the nineties. Oh, they said over thirty million. They did, and I, I don't know how that was possible with the salary cap because I don't remember a player making twenty million regularly until around two thousand ten. Well, and what I thought was so interesting too is that while they had Jordan there he was able to meld so many personalities together and win, even when they came in in weird circumstances. You want to talk about Dennis Rodman coming in after having played for the bad boy Pistons, having done stuff like cheap-shotted Scottie Pippen and pushed him into the stands late and trying to injure him, like clearly with intent to injure him. And then he gets, you know, Rodman on the team and somehow they're able to win three more and, you know, have the personalities work out. And then you have Tony Kukoc come on the team after it was it was well known that uh, that the GM was trying to get rid of Scottie Pippen to bring in Tony Kukoc, and it was going to pay Tony Kukoc a lot more. And somehow he's still able to get the best out of him and get him to work together. I mean, that was just amazing to me. Yeah, that was really impressive to me. You know how they bring in all these different players that you thought, you know, on paper that they would. Um, have an internal struggle that that would that the locker room would be in disarray that they were able to make it work. You know, you combine uh, the best player in NBA history, one of the best defenders, um, one of the best rebounders in Rodman, um, one of the best six men in Tony Kukos, one of the best spot up shooters in clutch players in Steve Kerr when it came to playoff shots, and that was just you know the perfect um, um, straw that stirred the drink. And then Phil Jackson, you know, as the head coach, um, you know, what, what do you make of um, the breakup of this team? You know, there's a lot of theories about whether the blame should be on Jerry Krause as the general manager, Jerry Reinsdorf, the, the um, owner, or Phil Jackson, you know, the head coach who decides he wants to leave and go to the Lakers. You know, there's some conspiracies there about whether – he even had a handshake agreement with the Lakers that he, you know, almost encouraged Jordan to retire. So I guess my question is, where do you stand on who was most culpable for the Chicago Bulls breakup? Joe, I don't even think there's any question about it. It was Jerry Krause. I mean, it seemed like from, you know, the mid-90s on, he was trying to push Phil Jackson out the door, which I never understood because, I mean, the guy's just a constant winner. That's all he does. And I almost feel like there's a little bit of like a curse of the goat or something thing going on in Chicago, this time being the curse of the greatest of all time, because Jerry Krause intentionally broke up this team. He kept saying, I want to get rid of Phil Jackson before the season. Okay, fine, he's won five out of the last seven. I'll give him one more chance. But I want to get rid of him and I want to break up this team. And what has happened with the Bulls since Jordan, Scotty, and Dennis all left the building and Steve Kerr? Bill. They have not won a championship. And in fact, they haven't even been close to winning a championship. I mean, they had like one season with um, uh, the, guy, the player from Memphis. I can't think of his name. Derek Rose. Yeah, with Derrick Rose, where it seemed like they had a pretty solid team. And, you know, they were pretty good under Thibodeau, but they were never really the team that you thought was going to win at all. And Jerry Krause just seemed bound and determined 
it was almost like he wanted to prove his legacy that he could win without Jordan and that he could win without Phil Jackson, and that's why he was breaking this team apart. And, I mean, he was definitely the man behind that because publicly he was trying to get rid of him. He didn't like Scottie Pippen, and that was clear. He didn't want to pay Pippen the money he was owed. He tried to intentionally antagonize him with going after Kukoc and making it clear. I mean, I just think the guy wanted to distance himself from the Bulls' legacy of Jordan Pippen and uh, and Phil Jackson and show that he was the guy who could create everything and bring in new guys and show that he could do it, even though there still might have been a couple more championships left in that nucleus had he allowed it to stay. Yeah, he definitely, I think, was um, motivated from the sense that he kind of inherited Jordan as a general manager, you know, Jordan's already there when he gets yeah. hired. And so I think he wanted to prove his worth without a player like Jordan, that he could build his own team with his own, you know, hand-picked uh, franchise cornerstone. But obviously it didn't work out. And so, you know, there's so much debate about what would have happened had the Chicago Bulls in 1998 stayed together. You know, you think about like the Beatles staying together, like the Chicago Bulls is definitely in that same realm. Do you think the Bulls would have won another championship together? Absolutely. They did. I mean, every year Jordan was there in the 90s, they won. When he comes back out of retirement, the first full season that he's there, they win. And the only reason they didn't win the year before that is he comes in in the middle of the season, and that was the greatest Magic team we've ever seen with Horace Grant and Penny Hardaway. And that was just – that was going to be a tough win that year. And, I mean, after watching that, I mean, he had to be the most competitive person I've ever seen in my entire life. And if he's out there on the floor with those guys around him with the full support of his franchise, who's going to beat him? I mean, time and time again, he made the ultimate shot to win. He put up 60 points when he had to. He'd even go to Las Vegas to save Dennis Rodman from being two weeks in in an ultimate vendor. You know, I mean, he just did everything. Well, the interesting thing about the Chicago Bulls being disbanded by, you know, Jeremy Krause or, you know, whoever you want to lay the blame on, I think that them going out in 98, winning a championship, almost allows them to have this mythical persona where they're larger than life in their own right because we never saw them lose as a unit. We saw them in the mid-90s when Jordan retired lose, but I feel like that's a little bit of an asterisk behind it. When they were fully loaded with Jordan, with all the supporting cast like Rodman and Kerr, they never lost in finals. And so... You know, it's the great story about what could have been. So I think that that adds to their legacy more than had they, you know, tried again and lost in 1999 or 2000. And we see them, you know, go out with somebody getting injured or it's kind of, you know, a sad ending. I think the curtain coming down with a championship adds to the legacy. But I also do have some questions about whether – they would have actually forfeited. Um, I, I think that historically it's so hard to win four consecutive championships. Like I said earlier, nobody's done it since the Boston Celtics. Um, I think that the biggest concern I would have, Dan, is from an injury perspective, especially with a lot of their key players approaching their mid-30s. Mm-hmm. And Rodman, I think, is going to be 38 the next season. 
could everybody stay healthy, the odds being against them would have been a key factor to me, especially when I look at what happened to Kevin Durant last year, just at the age of 30. You know, you're just one key injury away from something happening. And so that would be, I guess, my only pause for why I might question whether they could have pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, you look at the the injury that Scottie Pippen had to his back that looked so devastating in the last couple games against the Jazz. And, I mean, you could see how much just pure pain he was in and how tough he was to even, like, get that get that out and play. And you got to think that Pippen didn't have much left in the tank either with that back injury he had. Yeah, and just the exhaustion of trying to go to, to all those consecutive finals. Well, Joe, and, and the last thing that I, that I want to leave off with was – I came away, I always thought that Phil Jackson was the greatest coach in NBA history and arguably the greatest coach in sports history. But the way he managed his players was just so amazing. He knew that you had to let everybody be themselves in order for them to flourish. And it was most exhibited with the way he let Rodman just be himself. Like, you know, Dennis Rodman comes up to him, hey, coach, I need a vacation. I'm going to go to Vegas for 48 hours. And he just knowing Dennis Rodman, he's like, okay, go just don't die you know but he knew like he knew that that was what Rodman needed in order to to be himself and win and he allowed that kind of thing to happen and that's why they played so great for him yeah I mean I think that you know let's say Doug Collins and stayed on as their head coach I think they may have won eight championship or two I don't see him winning six without Bill Jackson and his personnel no definitely not and Joe, this uh, this can't be this show can't happen without our personalities and without our fans watching. And we want to thank everybody for watching. Uh, tune in next week at 9 p.m. And like I said, get on Spotify, search the Dana Joe Sports Show, and find all of our old uploaded episodes. And as always, I'm Ben. And I'm Jeff.